0: This is a message you'll want to take notes on and keep them and remind yourselves for all of life. What does it look like to not get stuck in the sanctification process? Brother, come and minister to us. Let's welcome him. Well, thank you very much Pastor Steve and it it is certainly my privilege to be here with you this morning. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to come and open up the word of God with you from the book of 2nd Peter. Do open up your Bibles with me to 2nd Peter chapter 1. And I also want to say a brief word of gratitude and thanks to Pastor Adam as well. So thankful for the opportunity he has given me to be here with you today. Uh, You all have a faithful man as your pastor, and I'm sure you would agree with me on that. He has been a personal encouragement to me in the midst of some difficult times. He may not even know that he has, but he has, and I'm grateful for him not only for that, but also for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. And as Pastor Steve has mentioned, uh, looking at a very significant topic, A topic that I think does indeed touch every single one of us and one that we would all do well to look into the Word of God and and seek to fully understand. The title of this morning's message is How to Get Your Sanctification Unstuck. And before some of you more theologically minded begin to wonder, yes, the answer is unstuck is the technical theological term. Because sometimes we can feel like we have gotten stuck, right? Right? You know, let me tell you a bit of a story. I'll give you some um, trivia that you can seek to stump Pastor Adam with when he gets back from Washington, D.C. I was actually back in Washington, D.C. myself not too long ago, traveling on business for the seminary, and I happened to drive past the Washington Monument. And as I drove past, I noticed that uh, the Washington Monument is very distinctly two different colors. At about a third of the way up, the color changes pretty dramatically, and it's, it's very different from from there all the way up to the rest of the whole monument. And I asked the D.C. native that I was there with as we were driving around town, why is the Washington Monument two different colors? And he says, you know, I have no idea. No one has ever asked that question before. So I did what any self-respecting tourist would do, and I asked Siri. Hey, Siri, all your phones are going to go off now. Why is the Washington Monument two different colors? And I got back a very interesting story. The story was this, the construction started on that monument in 1848 and it went on for six years until in 1854 that project completely and officially ran out of money and it was stopped and it was stuck and for the next 23 years that great monument in our nation's capital sat there unfinished like a big marble stub sticking out of the National Mall, completely unfinished. It was stuck. The national government, they didn't have the resources to go ahead and finish the project. They had been going through the Civil War and all the upheaval that came with that, and they just did not have the money to get it going again. And they had, they had competi- competitions to see, well, maybe there's a way for us to just stick a cap on it where it's at and just have it be half-finished and just call it good enough. And then Congress realized that a, a half-completed monument is, is no monument at all. If you've only got something half done, it doesn't actually portray any sort of honor for the one that it was intended to honor to begin with. This thing has to be finished. And so finally, in 1884, the work resumed on the Washington Monument, but they ran into a problem. The original quarry that had been used to build the first third was officially out of marble and granite, and they had to go find a new quarry. Hence the reason the Washington Monument to this day is two very distinct shades of white or gray, and you can see that difference to this day. You know, so often I think that sanctification can feel a lot like that, where we've got ourselves and we see ourselves and we understand that we are half finished, but yet we feel stuck. There's seemingly very little progress being made in our spiritual walk, and we can so often look at ourselves and say, I feel like I am nothing more than a half-finished monument to the grace of God. Where he has begun a good work in me, but when, oh, when is he going to get around to finishing it? How do I get stuck, unstuck in my spiritual walk? How do I grow? Because as I survey my life, and I'm sure as you survey yours, all of us could agree with one another that we are not growing as rapidly as we would like to be growing. What does progressive sanctification mean when it doesn't feel like I'm progressing? You know, the Apostle Peter, he knew something about that very feeling. Right? He's the only disciple to whom Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Right? He is the only disciple who verbally denied Christ when Christ needed him so much after having evidenced so much bravado. He essentially says to Jesus, I got this, only to find out that he had absolutely nothing. Peter was the living embodiment of Philippians 1.6, that it is he who began a good work in you who will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Peter came to the place where he had to understand that he was not the one who could get himself moving and going again. There was one far greater, one with far more power, who is capable of doing that. And that is the message that Peter has for us here in the book of Second Peter this morning. Let me read this text together for us, starting in verse 2. Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Is it possible for us to get going in our spiritual walk? Well, it is. And Peter tells us this morning in this passage how. But the key question before us is this, how does this happen? How does progress get made in progressive sanctification? And that is what he's focused on here in this text before us. In this text, Peter basically takes two halves of an an equation to making progress and he, he smashes them together. On the one side, you have what God is doing in sanctifying you. On the other side, you have that which we are responsible to be doing in order to be pursuing and running after sanctification. And that's the reason why, in verse 5, Peter says, for this very reason, make all effort with all diligence to supply your faith with, and then he goes through a long list of things that we are to actively be doing. And so often I think that we can tend to focus ourselves upon that which we are supposed to be doing, that which we are supposed to be supplying, the work that we're supposed to get down to. And yet, we apply ourselves without due diligence and recognition of the fact that we can only supply those things as we are relying upon and depending upon the Lord to do the part that he must do in our sanctification. And so this morning, I want us to focus on that first half. The order of operations is that God does His work, and it is His work that enables us to do our work. And I think we often focus on our work, and rightly so, because we have much work to do. And there are many commands in Scripture that do command us to get down to business and do that work. But we often forget that the foundation, the ground for our ability to do any of that, is rooted entirely in the person of Christ and the work of God in our sanctification. And this morning, we're here together to learn that in order to grow, you must understand God's role in your growth. The first thing that Peter wants us to see here in these verses is that you must depend upon God's power. You must depend on His power. If you look at this verse, verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let's think about that for a minute. What, what is this power? Let's just spend some time together thinking through the nature of the power of God because ultimately it is his power that enables us. Look at that. It's not just divine power. It is his divine power. Peter is wanting to get across the point that the power in your sanctification, the ability to do anything in your sanctification, is not dependent and rooted in you, rather it is rooted in him. It is divine power, it is his divine power. And so when we're tempted to say, I'm stuck, we have to go back to the foundation and recognize that it's his power. The grammar here in this verse, it refers directly back to the person of Christ. And that tells us then that the power of Christ himself that was so evident in his calming of the storm and the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the raising of the dead and the tearing of the veil, all of that immense divine power that belongs to him is now, Peter tells us, being funneled down into the efforts to make you more like himself. That power that he so clearly possesses he is now using for the specific purpose of causing you to look and act like Him. It's an overwhelming power. It's not a wimpy human power to simply make a choice to do right today. Instead, the power and sanctification, you see, it is, it is an infinite, gushing power. It is divine power. He is the fountainhead of all change that takes place in your life. His power is the only power. His power is your power, and everything about your sanctification finds its source back in His power. Without Him, you're stuck, but with Him, there's a a throbbing, constant, powerful source that undergirds not only your efforts, but your progress as well. I think that's the point that Paul was trying to make in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, according to what? The power that works within us. His power is the source. His power is also a gift. And the word that is used here for gift, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that we need to be like him. That word there, granted, it's, it's the same word that's used in creation to, to speak the universe into existence. And, and look at the way that it's being used here. That power, the same power that spoke everything that we see into existence, here it is being used to give us something. And that word granted, it, it's not just a gift, it, it's a grant, it's a, it's a different word. It has the idea of bestowing something upon us in a, in a legal sense. Recently, I went through a real estate transaction. And the way that the real estate transaction played out, I was required to go down to the county recorder's office. And I walked into the county recorder's office. Usually, that's not a normal step in a real estate transaction, but this is one that had really been tough. And so I had to walk in that office myself to take them the papers, make sure they got signed so that everything could close the way that it was supposed to close. And I I walked into the county recorder's office, and I have never in my life been in a bigger circus than that office. I mean, there were people there getting married. There were people there, it seemed like they were getting buried. There were people there trying to start businesses, close businesses. There were people there trying to sell you things with big posters around their neck, saying, I am not employed by the city of Los Angeles, I am on my own trying to sell you this thing and I'm saying with a poster like that why would anyone buy what you have to say it was nuts there's people there recording deeds and trying to close on properties and commercial property and residential property it was a zoo but I walked in and the moment that I walked into that office I I did not own anything the moment that I walked out of that office I did own something And the reason why is because I had, in that office, been given a grant deed. I had signed a piece of paper that formally and officially bestowed upon me and granted to me the rights and privileges of that property's ownership, along with all the responsibilities that go with that property ownership and the property taxes, right? You see, I paid, and now it's mine. And I own it and that deed has been granted to me. That's exactly the same word that Peter uses here in this verse. His divine power has granted to you in a legal and technical sense where everything that goes with that grant deed now, all of the blessings of your salvation, all of the power that God has used to bring about that salvation, all of that power has now been technically and legally granted to you. all of the privileges and rights and responsibilities that go with it now belong to you as well. One moment you own it, the next moment One moment you don't own it, the next moment you do. Except here we find that we didn't pay anything. He is the one who paid, and then he turned around and, and granted it to us in a legal sense. It is a gift, but it's more than that. His power brought about a formal endowment with all the attached rights and privileges and, re- and responsibilities. It's, and here in this text, it's, it's past tense, you see. It's already done. It's not as though God could have done this, but didn't. He has already done it and already bestowed upon you all of his power to make you like himself. It's one-sided. You see, he is the one who called you. You didn't do anything to deserve this or pay for it. And yet he has bestowed it, all of this power, to cause you to become like him. He has placed it upon you. He has granted it formally to you. And that power, it's not just from God or it's not just a gift, it is also available. Look at what he says here. This divine power has granted to us all things we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's Him. Again, it's Christ. You see, through the source of God's power for life and godliness, all of it, all that power, it's made available to us in the person of Christ. That, That knowledge, it's a full, deep, thorough, complete, rich awareness of Him. It's your knowledge of Christ that allows you to be rooted in your awareness of Him, The more clearly you see Jesus, the greater power you have in your spiritual life. Because, as Peter tells us here, he is the force that not only mandates that you change, but also enables you to change. You show me a person who is growing, and I'll show you someone who is growing in their knowledge of Christ. You show me someone who is stuck, and I'll show you someone who is failing to look at Christ. See, it's the vision of Christ that becomes power and sanctification. That's what Peter says. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that we need through the knowledge of Christ. And then he says this, Who called us by his own glory and excellence. That word there, by. In your Bible, the ESV translates it to his own glory and excellence, but it really is a word of agency. He did all of these things. He gave us this power By his own glory and excellence. You see, it was his very own virtue, perfection, and glory that enables us to become like Christ, to see Christ. And and when you get to heaven someday in the future, the very first thing that you'll hear is this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive what? Honor and glory, dominion and power. Why is that such a big deal? Because God used all of those things that were true about him to save us, and now he is using them to perfect us. See, these characteristics, they are unchanging constants that define who God is. They are guaranteed essential pieces of who he is. And here in this text, we're being told that God uses the very nature of himself to guarantee that we have access to the power that we need to progress in our sanctification. Here's the bottom line then. When God stops being glorious, you'll be allowed to say that you have no spiritual power. When he ceases to be holy, you'll be justified in claiming that you can no longer grow. But as long as he is holy, as long as he is glorious, the spiritual wind blows in your sails with one never-ending gust. See, it's the power of God available to you that enables you to make any level of progress at all. And so we must depend fully upon his power and not our own power. You see, it's your knowledge that it was granted as a gift, that it's available through Christ, and realizing that it is guaranteed by his very nature that allows you to understand that the power and sanctification actually comes not from you, but from him. The very foundation of your ability to grow, to apply yourself diligently to the work of spiritual growth. It's got to be grounded squarely in your reliance upon the power of God at work in you. Let's keep going. Peter is going to show us that that we do need more than just a general awareness that God is powerful. We have to ask ourselves the question, well, how does that power work practically? How does that power work within us? And that causes us to come to the place where we recognize God's provision for us. Look at what he says there. What has that divine power granted to us in verse 2? It is granted to us nothing short of everything that pertains to our life and godliness. You see, through his power, we've been given all of the life-giving material that we need in order to grow. We must recognize his provision. This past week, I was up in Kings Canyon National Park, beautiful national park. I had never been there before. But as I was walking down a trail through the woods, I I came across this tree that had clearly been burned out in a fire long ago. And the tree was maybe three feet in diameter. And there on one side, just one side of that three-foot tree, there was six inches of solid wood that was allowing that tree to remain upright. And you could see through the other two and a half feet straight through the trunk. I mean, it was being held up by just very small six inches. And through that six inches, as I looked up the tree, most of it was dead. And yet at the very top, there were some green shoots that were coming out of that old burned out tree. And I very quickly thought to myself, I need to get out of here because that thing looks like it's about to fall over and kill somebody. But I'm looking at this tree and realizing it's getting life up through just that very little bit that is is there. That is not the way our sanctification is. That is not the way that God has provided what we need for life and godliness. He's not just giving us just a very little bit of what we need, just enough to keep life barely going at the very top, but most of everything else is dead. That is not how sanctification works. You see, God hasn't given us a little bit, just enough to keep us alive. What has God given to us? He has given to us Everything, And you've got everything you need. And, and when you look to his provision and his power, you've got it all. And you become like a tree firmly planted by streams of water where there are no withering leaves, a solid trunk pumping the groundwater of truth to every part of your life. That is the provision of God for you and your sanctification. You have been given everything. And you are now deeply rooted and grounded in him. Well, what is that everything? It says it is everything both for life and for godliness. As you track through the logic of this text and get down to the end of the chapter in 2 Peter 1, you find out that that everything really is the word of God. If that which, clo- which causes you to grow is your knowledge of Christ, where do you find the knowledge of Christ? You find that knowledge in the word of God. It's the reason why Peter says in chapter 1 here, later on in verse 19, He says, we have something more sure the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. What's he pointing us back to? He's saying, if you would grow, if you would know God, if you would progress, you must look to Christ. Where do you see Christ. Not in your experiences, Peter says, certainly not in my experience, which is astonishing seeing that Peter was there at the transfiguration and had experience seeing Christ in all of his unveiled glory. Peter says, don't look at your experiences to know Christ in order to grow. If you would know Christ, go find him in the pages of his word. And that is where you will find the provision of God to give you everything that you need for life and for godliness everything that is pertaining to your life, the living of your life as you're bound upon this earth before the gaze of a holy God and everything you need not only for life but also for your godliness, your, your relationship to God that is not bound by your life upon this earth. And the result of this great provision that God has given to us in the person of Christ that we access through the pages of his word is that we now have no excuse because when the power of God's provision is behind you, And available for you to know in the pages of his word. There is no reason to continue living as though you had never met him at all. And you say, I just can't. Peter says, no, you can. You say, but I'm stuck. Peter says, no, he's already provided. And it's right here. It's not as though you could. It's not as though he could or he might or he won't. He already has. And you're holding it in your hands. So when you are growing in your knowledge of Christ, His power provides you with the necessary sufficiency to do the right thing and the direction to know how. And that direction comes through the truth that we find in the pages of Scripture. It's an amazing promise that this book is to us everything we need for life and godliness. Why? Because it shows us the person of Christ. But it's not just even about knowing Christ, if Peter goes on here. It's about knowing the promises that that Christ grants to us. Where God's role in sanctification, it, it goes far beyond just the provision of mere knowledge. It gets real and practical for us very fast. And this is where we're commanded to cling to God's promises. That's the third thing we find here in this text about God's role in our sanctification. We must cling to the promises of God. Because God has, through his power, by his provision, granted to us all of these things, all of these promises. Look at what he says in verse 4. It is by this power, through his glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, there's our word again, his precious and very great promises. Well, what promises? It's every promise contained within the pages of the Scripture from God to us, and there are so many of those promises. I'll just run through a list to remind us. In Romans eight, and nine we're promised the reality of spiritual life. In John eleven, twenty five, we're promised to have a resurrected life. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 we're promised the Holy Spirit, in John 10:10 10, 10, we're promised grace, in Galatians 5:22 we're promised joy, in Isaiah 40:31 we're promised strength, in John 16:13 we're promised guidance when we don't have it, in Isaiah 41:10 we're promised help, in John 14:26 we're promised instruction. In Ephesians 1:17 he promises to give those of us who lack wisdom wisdom. In John 14, 1 through 3, he promises us heaven. And in 1 Timothy 4, 8, he promises us eternal reward. These are the promises that are given by God to us. And Peter says you need to look at those promises and see them as being precious and very great. Well, what do those words mean? Let's just think about that for a moment. What is the value of of these promises, that word they're precious. It, it's a word in the scriptures that is most often used to describe precious stones. Revelation 21:19 talks about it, where it says the foundations of the city of heaven, the city walls, are adorned with every kind of precious stone. And then it goes on to list out ten or fifteen different kinds of precious stones. The point is that they are very valuable, because. They are very scarce, right? Part of what makes these promises so valuable is the unbelievable scarcity that they represent. I remember as a young man going to the jewelry store for the very first time to buy my then-girlfriend, who is now my wife, her very first piece of jewelry from a boyfriend who happened to be me. And as I pulled out my wallet, making minimum wage, and walked into that store, I realized that jewelry is expensive, really, really expensive, and I'm looking at all these different jewels and I'm realizing very quickly that I am totally outclassed right now. I do not have the cash flow that I need in order to afford anything close to or resembling a diamond in here. I mean, a ruby, maybe, but it's really expensive, why? Because you don't just walk down the street with the gravel under your shoes and happen to find a cut precious stone. They are rare, exceedingly rare. And the rarer they are, the more expensive they become. And pretty soon, everything becomes fantastically expensive. Because you can't find them just anywhere. And that's the word that Peter's using here in this text. He says, these promises are very precious. They are very rare. You need to understand the, the value and the scarcity of what God has provided you through His power. He has promised you all of these things, and the fact that, that you can have those promises is not something to be taken for granted. He says they're precious. And He goes on, and He says they're also great. And the word in the original language that He uses here for these great promises is the word megas, which should sound to you like mega, right? It's where we get our word mega. It means literally great ones, large ones, very important ones, exceedingly significant ones. It, It can even refer to the volume of something or the scope of something. Where Peter is saying here that these promises, if you would grow, must be cranked up to maximum volume. They must encompass the biggest possible space before your eyes. These promises, because of their scarcity, because of their value, should be monolithic in your eyes. Many of you may have gone up to Yosemite at some point in your life and in your travels, and you may have stood there before that great stone known as El Capitan, right? It is enormous. It is so huge that if you stand at the base of that thing and look up, it looks like even though it's on a, on, a, on a slight incline, it looks like it's been inverted and is looming up over top of you, about to fall on top of you. I mean, it is that big. You cannot see around it. You cannot see over it. If you stand at the base of that cliff face and look up, it fully fills your vision because it is great. It is huge. It encompasses everything in your line of sight. And by using the words that Peter has used here, he is saying, that is what the promises of God ought to be to you in your daily life as you walk with him. Recognize their scarcity and their value. They are precious. And recognize the scope and the impact of what they represent. They are great and they must fill your vision. They must be all that you can see, all that you can hear. You see, the reason for that is that it is through these promises that you can become a partaker in the divine nature. So cling to them, Peter says. You see, the agency of change in your life are the promises that God has made. Without these promises, you're a sitting duck. It's the promises of God that enables change, and, that, and, it's, and it's that effect that makes them precious and magnificent to us. So we must cling to them, cherish them, look to them, claim them, think about them. When we sit down, when we rise up, they are to be everything in our sight. They are to fill our senses because they are our lifeline. It is through God's working, using his power through these promises as he executes upon them that we are made to become like him. So when you feel stuck, Remember that God has not only brought to you the knowledge of Jesus Christ, thereby providing everything that you need for life and godliness, but he's also handed you an arsenal of promises that are precious and magnificent to use in your daily struggle. But what's the point of all of this? The power of God, the provision of God, the promises of God. It's so that we may begin to submit to the purposes of God. And that's the fourth thing that we see here. What is God doing anyway in our sanctification? What is he doing? Look at verse 4. It says, it's by these promises that you may become partakers of the divine nature, escaping from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. This is the ultimate purpose of God in your sanctification, and you cannot forget it. You must submit yourself to it. His purpose is that you would be conformed to Him and escape the corruption that previously characterized you. Ephesians 4.13 tells us that the point, the end goal of sanctification is for you to end up looking like Christ. And when you begin to partake in the glory and goodness of God and look to Him and seek out the person of Christ in His Word and gaze upon Him and cling to His promises, that is your pathway to escaping the corruption That exists within the world. I mean, and just look, compare that word corruption there with the glory and excellence that so characterizes our great God. Corruption, I mean, the glory, the excellence, they are precious, they are magnificent, but corruption there, it speaks of a rotting and and decomposing corpse. And the question in the text before us is this. Would you rather experience the nature of God driven by his glory or experience the corruption of the world driven by your own lust? Answering that question, it's the purpose of sanctification. It's the divine purpose that God has outlined before you. It brings you to the end of yourself broken, incapable sinner that you are, and it hides you inside the protected power of God that is unleashed to revolutionize and transform you into looking like the person of Christ so that you can partake in His divine nature. You see, we cannot hope to begin the doing of sanctification to begin applying ourselves to all the things that Peter is rightly going to list in the rest of this chapter that we as Christians are responsible to do. We can't do any of that until we have first come back to the foundational starting point and come to grips with the knowledge of who Christ is, what he has bestowed upon us, and the access that he gives to us in the power of God. It's only through our understanding of God's working in our life, his power, his provision, his promises, his purposes, and our full dependence upon them, clinging to them, submitting to them, that we can effectively turn our attention to the doing. That's the reason why Peter follows up this knowledge of what God is doing in our sanctification in verses 2 through 4 with this command in verse 5. He says, For this very reason. Now that you know everything that he has just said, now you are ready to make every effort to supplement your faith, to supply your faith. And he gives a list of 10 things that we are to be doing, but not divorced from the power of God that makes it possible for us to do any of them to begin with. It's only after we've grasped these great truths about God and what he does that we can turn and begin to look at our part as well. In order for your sanctification to progress, if you are here this morning and say, I just feel stuck, because you're not looking to Christ, it's because you're not living and residing in the power of his great and wonderful, precious and magnificent provision for you. It's because you don't understand his purposes. You haven't submitted yourself to what he is doing and you're striking off on your own trying to bootstrap theology your way into heaven. And that's just not going to work. It's only as you recognize God's role and depend upon him that you can get down to work and accomplish anything of any substance in your spiritual life at all. So as we close this morning, there's just one final question before us and Peter answers it very clearly in this text. Will this work? If I look back to the power of God and depend upon Him, will that work? Will it give me the strength that I need to do the things that I must now do? Well, look at what Peter says in verses 8 through 11. He gives us a promise, really, a concluding promise. He says, "For If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Here it is. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Why? Because you're so great? You're so strong? Because you can do this? No. No. Because you're relying upon the power of God, through the person of Christ, to radically transform you. And that's how you get your spiritual growth going again. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the power of your word and the truth of the scripture that is represented by the words that are in this text before us this morning. We are so grateful for the work that you have done in us, not only to bring us to yourself, but also to provide us with everything, to bestow upon us these great and magnificent promises that motivate our desire to know you and to grow and to find our power in your power. So grateful for your work in us that has not only saved us, but sanctifies us and ultimately one day will perfect us when we stand before the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, having been perfected, seeing him face to face. Our hearts yearn for that day and look forward to the work that you will accomplish at that time. We pray these things in Jesus' name.